Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. William Morris, Art and Socialism, Part 2 Betwixt the days in which we now live and the end of the Middle Ages, Europe has gained freedom of thought, increase of knowledge and huge talent for dealing with the material forces of nature. Comparative political freedom with all and respect for the lives of civilised men and other gains that go with these things. Nevertheless, I say deliberately that if the present state of society is to endure, she has bought these gains at too high a price in the loss of the pleasure in daily work, which once did certainly solace the mass of men for their fears and oppressions. The death of art was too high a price to pay for the material prosperity of the middle classes. Grievous indeed it was that we could not keep both our hands full, that we were forced to spill from one while we gathered with the other. Yet, to my mind, it is more grievous still to be unconscious of the loss, or being dimly conscious of it, to have to force ourselves to forget it and to cry out that all is well. For, though all is not well, I know that men's natures are not so changed in three centuries that we can say to all the thousands of years which went before them, You were wrong to cherish art, and now we have found out that all men need is food and raiment and shelter with a smattering of knowledge of the material fashion of the universe. Creation is no longer a need of man's soul, his right hand may forget its cunning, and he be none the worse for it. Three hundred years, a day in the lapse of ages, has not changed man's nature thus utterly, be sure of that. One day we shall win back art, that is to say the pleasure of life, win back art again to our daily labour. Where is the hope then, you may say? Show it us. There lies the hope, where hope of old deceived us. We gave up art for what we thought was light and freedom, but it was less than light and freedom which we bought. The light showed many things to those of the well-to-do who cared to look for them. The freedom left the well-to-do free enough if they cared to use their freedom. But these were few at the best. To the most of men, the light showed them that they need look for hope no more, and the freedom left the most of men free, to take at a wretched wage what slaves' work lay nearest to them, or starve. There is our hope, I say. If the bargain had been really fair, complete all round, Then were there naught else to do but to bury art and forget the beauty of life? But now the cause of art has something else to appeal to, no less than the hope of the people for the happy life which has not yet been granted to them. There is our hope. The cause of art is the cause of the people. Think of a piece of history, and so hope. Time was when the rule of Rome held the whole world of civilization in its poisonous embrace. To all men, even the best as you may see in the very Gospels, that rule seemed doomed to last for ever. Nor to those who dwelt under it was there any world worth thinking of beyond it. But the days passed and though none saw a shadow of the coming change, it came nonetheless like a thief in the night, and the barbarians, the world which lay outside the rule of Rome, were upon her. And men, blind with terror, lamented the change and deemed the world undone by the fury of the north. But even that fury bore with it things long strange to Rome, which once had been the food its glory fed on. Hatred of lies, scorn of riches, contempt of death, 
faith in the fair fame won by steadfast endurance, honourable love of women, all these things the northern fury bore with it, as the mountain torrent bears the gold, and so Rome fell and Europe rose, and the hope of the world was born again. To those that have hearts to understand, this tale of the past is a parable of the days to come, of the change in store for us hidden in the breast of the barbarism of civilization, the proletariat, and we of the middle class, the strength of the mighty but monstrous system of competitive commerce, it behoves us to clear our souls of greed and cowardice and to face the change which is now once more on the road, to see the good and the hope it bears with it, amidst all its threats of violence, amidst all its ugliness, which was not born of itself, but of that which it is doomed to destroy. Now, once more, I will say that we well-to-do people, those of us who love art, not as a toy, but as a thing necessary to the life of man, as a token of his freedom and happiness, have for our best work the raising of the standard of life among the people, or, in other words, establishing the claim I made for labour, which I will now put in a different form, that we may try to see what chiefly hinders us from making that claim good, and what are the enemies to be attacked. Thus I put the claim again. Nothing should be made by man's labour which is not worth making, or which must be made by labour degrading to the makers. Simple as that proposition is, and obviously right as I am sure it must seem to you, you will find, when you come to consider the matter, that it is a direct challenge to the death to the present system of labour in civilised countries. That system, which I have called competitive commerce, is distinctly a system of war, that is, of waste and destruction, or you may call it gambling if you will, the point of it being that under it whatever a man gains he gains at the expense of some other man's loss. Such a system does not and cannot heed whether the matters it makes are worth making. It does not and cannot heed whether those who make them are degraded by their work. It heeds one thing and one only, namely what it calls making a profit, which word has got to be used so conventionally that I must explain to you what it really means to wit the plunder of the weak by the strong. Now I say of this system that it is of its very nature destructive of art, that is to say of the happiness of life. Whatever consideration is shown for the life of the people in these days, whatever is done which is worth doing, is done in spite of the system and in the teeth of its maxims. And most true it is that we do, all of us, tacitly at least, admit that it is opposed to all the highest aspirations of mankind. Do we not know, for instance, how those men of genius work who are the salt of the earth, without whom the corruption of society would long ago have become unendurable? The poet, the artist, the man of science, is it not true that in their fresh and glorious days, when they are in the heyday of their faith and enthusiasm, they are thwarted at every turn by commercial war with its sneering question, will it pay? Is it not true that when they begin to win worldly success, when they become comparatively rich, in spite of ourselves they seem to us tainted by the contact with the commercial world? Need I speak of great schemes that hang about neglected, of things most necessary to be done, and so confessed by all men, that no one can seriously set a hand to because of the lack of money? While if it be a question of creating or stimulating some foolish whim in the public mind, the satisfaction of which will breed a profit, the money will come in by the ton. Nay, you know what an old story it is of the wars bred by commerce in search of new markets, which not even the most peaceable of statesmen can resist. 
an old story, and still it seems forever new, and now become a kind of grim joke, at which I would rather not laugh if I could help it, but am even forced to laugh from a soul laden with anger. And all that mastery over the powers of nature which the last hundred years or less has given us, what has it done for us under this system? In the opinion of John Stuart Mill, it was doubtful if all the mechanical inventions of modern times have done anything to lighten the toil of labour. Be sure there is no doubt that they were not made for that end, but to make a profit. Those almost miraculous machines, which if orderly forethought had dealt with them, might even now be speedily extinguishing all irksome and unintelligent labour, leaving us free to raise the standard of skill of hand and energy of mind in our workmen, and to produce afresh that loveliness and order which only the hand of man guided by his soul can produce. What have they done for us now? Those machines of which the civilised world is so proud, has it any right to be proud of the use they have been put to by commercial war and waste? I do not think exultation can have a place here. Commercial war has made a profit of these wonders. That is to say it has by their means bred for itself millions of unhappy workers, unintelligent machines as far as their daily work goes, in order to get cheap labour to keep up its exciting but deadly game forever. Indeed, that labour would have been cheap enough, cheap to the commercial war generals and deadly dear to the rest of us, but for the seeds of freedom which valiant men of old have sowed amongst us to spring up in our own day into chartism and trades unionism and socialism for the defence of order and a decent life. Terrible would have been our slavery, and not of the working classes alone, but for these germs of the change which must be. Even as it is, by the reckless aggregation of machine workers and their adjoints in the great cities and the manufacturing districts, it has kept down life amongst us, and keeps it down to a miserably low standard. So low that any standpoint for improvement is hard to think of even. By the means of speedy communication which it has created, and which should have raised the standard of life by spreading intelligence from town to country and widely creating modest centres of freedom of thought and habits of culture, by the means of the railways and the like, it has gathered to itself fresh recruits for the reserve army of competing lackales on which its gambling gains so much depend, stripping the countryside of its population and extinguishing all reasonable hope and life in the lesser towns. Nor can I, an artist, think last or least of the outward effects which betoken this rule of the wretched anarchy of commercial war. Think of the spreading sore of London, swallowing up with its loathsomeness field and wood and heath without mercy and without hope, mocking our feeble efforts to deal even with its minor evils of smoke-laden sky and befouled river. The black horror and reckless squalor of our manufacturing districts, so dreadful to the senses which are unused to them that it is ominous for the future of the race that any man can live among it in tolerable cheerfulness. Nay, in the open country itself, the thrusting aside by miserable jerry-built brick and slate of the solid grey dwellings that are still scattered about, fit emblems in their cheery but beautiful simplicity of the yeoman of the English field, whose destruction at the hands of yet young commercial war was lamented so touchingly by the high-minded Moor and the valiant Latimer. Everywhere, in short, the change from old to new, involving one certainty, whatever else may be doubtful, a worsening of the aspect of the country. This is the condition of England, of England, the country of order, peace and stability, the land of common sense and practicality, the country to which all eyes are turned, 
of those whose hope is for the continuance and perfection of modern progress, there are countries in Europe whose aspect is not so ruined outwardly, though they may have less of material prosperity, less widespread middle-class wealth to balance the squalor and disgrace I have mentioned. But if they are members of the great commercial whole, through the same mill they have got to go, unless something should happen to turn aside the triumphant march of war commercial before it reaches the end. That is what three centuries of commerce have brought, that hope to which sprung up when feudalism began to fall to pieces. What can give us the dayspring of a new hope? What, save general revolt against the tyranny of commercial war? The palliatives over which many worthy people are busying themselves now are useless, because they are but unorganised partial revolts against a vast, widespreading, grasping organisation which will, with the unconscious instinct of a plant, meet every attempt at bettering the condition of the people with an attack on a fresh side. New machines, new markets, wholesale emigration, the revival of grovelling superstitions, preachments of thrift to lackalls, of temperance to the wretched. Such things as these will baffle at every turn all partial revolts against the monster we of the middle classes have created for our own undoing. I will speak quite plainly on this matter, though I must say an ugly word in the end if I am to say what I think. The one thing to be done is to set people far and wide to think it possible to raise the standard of life. If you think of it, you will see clearly that this means stirring up general discontent. And now, to illustrate that I turn back to my blended claim for art and labour, that I may deal with the third clause in it. Here is the claim again. It is right and necessary that all men should have work to do. First, work worth doing. Second, work of itself pleasant to do. Third, work done under such conditions as would make it neither over-wearisome nor over-anxious. With the first and second clauses, which are very nearly related to each other, I have tried to deal already. They are, as it were, the soul of the claim for proper labour. The third clause is the body without which that soul cannot exist. I will extend it in this way, which will indeed partly carry us over ground already covered. No one who is willing to work should ever fear want of such employment as would earn for him all due necessaries of mind and body. All due necessaries. What are the due necessaries for a good citizen? First, honourable and fitting work, which would involve giving him a chance of gaining capacity for his work by due education. Also, as the work must be worth doing and pleasant to do, it will be found necessary to this end that his position be so assured to him that he cannot be compelled to do useless work or work in which he cannot take pleasure. The second necessity is decency of surroundings, including a. good lodging, b. ample space, c. general order and beauty. That is, a. our houses must be well built, clean and healthy, b. there must be abundant garden space in our towns and our towns must not eat up the fields and natural features of the country, nay, I demand even that there be left waste places and wilds in it, or romance and poetry, that is art, will die out amongst us. C. Order and beauty means that not only our houses must be stoutly and properly built, but also that they be ornamented duly, that the fields be not left only for cultivation, but also that they be not spoilt by it any more than a garden is spoilt. No one, for instance, to be allowed to cut down, for mere profit, trees whose loss would spoil a landscape. 
neither on any pretext should people be allowed to darken the daylight with smoke, to befoul rivers, or to degrade any spot of earth with squalid litter and brutal, wasteful disorder. The third necessity is leisure. You will understand that in using that word limply first, that all men must work for some portion of the day, and secondly, that they have a positive right to claim a respite from that work. The leisure they have a right to claim must be ample enough to allow them full rest of mind and body. A man must have time for serious individual thought, for imagination, for dreaming even, or the race of men will inevitably worsen. Even of the honourable and fitting work of which I have been speaking, which is a whole heaven asunder from the forced work of the capitalist system, a man must not be asked to give more than his fair share, or men will become unequally developed, and there will still be a rotten place in society. Here, then, I have given you the conditions under which work worth doing and undegrading to do can be done. Under no other conditions can it be done. If the general work of the world is not worth doing and undegrading to do, it is a mockery to talk of civilization. Well, then, can these conditions be obtained under the present gospel of capital, which has for its motto, the devil take the hindmost? Let us look at our claim again in other words. In a properly ordered state of society, every man willing to work should be ensured, first, honourable and fitting work, second, a healthy and beautiful house, third, full leisure for rest of mind and body. Now, I don't suppose that anybody here will deny that it would be desirable that this claim should be satisfied. But what I want you all to think is that it is necessary that it be satisfied, that unless we try our utmost to satisfy it, we are but part and parcel of a society founded on robbery and injustice, condemned by the laws of the universe to destroy itself by its own efforts to exist for ever. Furthermore, I want you to think that, as on the one hand it is possible to satisfy this claim, so on the other hand it is impossible to satisfy it under the present plutocratic system, which will forbid us even any serious attempt to satisfy it. The beginnings of social revolution must be the foundations of the rebuilding of the art of the people, that is to say, of the pleasure of life. To say ugly words again, do we not know that the greater part of men in civilised societies are dirty, ignorant, brutal, or at best, anxious about the next week's subsistence, that they are in short poor? And we know, when we think of it, that this is unfair. It is an old story of men who have become rich by dishonest and tyrannical means, spending in terror of the future their ill-gotten gains liberally and in charity, as tis called. Nor are such people praised. In the old tales tis thought that the devil gets them after all. An old story, but I say, de te fabula, of thee is the story told, thou art the man. I say that we of the rich and well-to-do classes are daily doing it likewise. Unconsciously, or half-consciously it may be, we gather wealth by trading on the hard necessity of our fellows, and then we give driblets of it away to those of them who in one way or other cry out loudest to us. Our poor laws, our hospitals, our charities, organised and unorganised, are but tubs thrown to the whale, blackmail paid to lamefoot justice, that she may not hobble after us too fast. When will the time come when honest and clear-seeing men will grow sick of all this chaos of waste, this robbing of Peter to pay Paul, which is the essence of commercial war? 
When shall we band together to replace the system whose motto is the devil take the hindmost with a system whose motto shall be really and without qualification, one for all and all for one? Who knows but the time may be at hand, but that we now living may see the beginning of that end which shall extinguish luxury and poverty. When the upper, middle and lower classes shall have melted into one class, living contentedly a simple and happy life. That is a long sentence to describe the state of things which I am asking you to help bring about. The abolition of slavery is a shorter one and means the same thing. You may be tempted to think the end not worth striving for on one hand, or on the other to suppose, each one of you, that it is so far ahead that nothing serious can be done towards it in our own time, and that you may as well therefore sit quiet and do nothing. Let me remind you how only the other day, in the lifetime of the youngest of us, many thousand men of our own kindred gave their lives on the battlefield to bring to a happy ending a mere episode in the struggle for the abolition of slavery. They are blessed and happy, for the opportunity came to them, and they seized it and did their best, and the world is the wealthier for it. And, if such an opportunity is offered to us, shall we thrust it from us that we may sit still in ease of body, in doubt, in disease of soul? These are the days of combat. Who can doubt that as he hears all round him the sounds that betoken discontent and hope and fear in high and low, the sounds of awakening courage and awakening conscience? These, I say, are the days of combat when there is no external peace possible to an honest man. But when, for that very reason, the internal peace of a good conscience founded on settled convictions is the easier to win, since action for the cause is offered us? Or will you say that here in the quiet, constitutionally governed country of England, there is no opportunity for action offered to us? If we were in gagged Germany, in gagged Austria, in Russia, where a word or two might land us in Siberia or the prison or fortress of Peter and Paul, why then, indeed? Ah, my friends, it is but a poor tribute to offer on the tombs of the martyrs of liberty, this refusal to take the torch from their dying hands. Is it not of Goethe told that on hearing one say he was going to America to begin life again, he replied, here is America, or nowhere. So for my part, I say, here is Russia, or nowhere. To say the governing classes in England are not afraid of freedom of speech, therefore let us abstain from speaking freely, is a strange paradox to me. Let us on the contrary press in through the breach which valiant men have made for us. If we hang back, we make their labours, their sufferings, their deaths of no account. Believe me, we shall be shown that it is all or nothing. Or will anyone here tell me that a Russian mujik is in a worse case than a sweating tailor's wage slave? Do not let us deceive ourselves. The class of victims exists here as in Russia. There are fewer of them? Maybe. Then are they of themselves more helpless, and so have more need of our help. And how can we of the middle classes, we the capitalists and our hangers-on, help them? By renouncing our class, and on all occasions when antagonism rises up between the classes, casting in our lots with the victims with those who are condemned at the best to lack of education, refinement, leisure, pleasure and renown, and at the worst to a life lower than that of the most brutal of savages, in order that the system of competitive commerce may endure. There is no other way, and this way I tell you plainly 
will in the long run give us plentiful occasion for self-sacrifice without going to Russia. I feel sure that in this assembly there are some who are steeped in discontent with the miserable anarchy of the century of commerce. To them, I offer a means of renouncing their class by supporting a socialist propaganda in joining the Democratic Federation, which I have the honour of representing before you, and which I believe is the only body in this country which puts forward constructive socialism as its programme. This, to my mind, is opportunity enough for those of us who are discontented with the present state of things and long for an opportunity of renunciation. And it is very certain that in accepting the opportunity, you will have at once to undergo some of the inconveniences of martyrdom, though without gaining its dignity at present. You will at least be mocked and laughed at by those whose mockery is a token of honour to an honest man. But you will, I don't doubt it, be looked on coldly by many excellent people, not all of whom will be quite stupid. You will run the risk of losing position, reputation, money, friends even. Losses which are certainly pinpricks to the serious martyrdom I have spoken of, but which nonetheless do try the stuff a man is made of, all the more as he can escape them with little other reproach of cowardice than that which his own conscience cries out at him. Nor can I assure you that you will forever escape scot-free from the attacks of open tyranny. It is true that at present capitalist society only looks on socialism in England with dry grins. But remember that the body of people who have for instance ruined India, starved and gagged Ireland and tortured Egypt have capacities in them, some ominous signs of which they have lately shown, for openly playing the tyrant's game nearer home. So on all sides I can offer you a position which involves sacrifice, a position which will give you your America at home and make you inwardly sure that you are at least of some use to the cause. And I earnestly beg you, those of you who are convinced of the justice of our cause, not to hang back from active participation in a struggle which, whoever helps or whoever abstains from helping, must beyond all doubt end at last in victory.